welcome to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, Pathway Out of Mass Incarceration, a City Bar Report. Sarah Berger, co-chair of the City Bar's Mass Incarceration Task Force, Julian Harris-Calvin, incoming task force co-chair, and Tess Cohen, chair of the City Bar's Criminal Justice Operations Committee, discuss recommendations to the New York State Legislature made in a recent task force on mass incarcerations report called A Pathway Out of Mass Incarceration and Towards a New Criminal Justice System. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Here's Sarah Berger. We're here to discuss the report issued by the Mass Incarceration Task Force, A Pathway Out of Mass Incarceration and Towards a New Criminal Justice System, Recommendations for the New York State Legislature. This report was also joined or co-sponsored by the Criminal Justice Operations Committee and the Corrections and Community Reentry Committee. I'm Sarah Berger. I'm the co-chair of the Mass Incarceration Task Force. I'll be acting as moderator today. We have Julian Harris-Calvin, who is the incoming co-chair of the task force and director of the Greater Justice New York Project at the Vera Institute of Justice. And we have Tess Cohen, who is chair of the Criminal Justice Operations Committee and a criminal defense attorney at ZMO Law and a very active member of the task force. And this report is her brainchild, we have to say. And we should add that we have some very interesting and varied perspectives here. Since Julian comes from a background as a public defender, including as a federal defender here in New York, Tess has a background as a prosecutor before joining the criminal defense firm, including as chief of the prescription drug unit for the office of the special special prosecutor here in New York. Um, so uh, why don't we start with Tess, can you give us a brief description of the genesis of the report and, and, and what it's all about? Of course. So this report was kind of uh, considered a follow-up to the first report uh, for the Mass Incarceration Task Force, which sort of identified the problem of mass incarceration and described it as well as, as how it exists in New York. And so this was our answer to what do we do about this problem? Um, what are the next steps that can be taken in order to reduce and address mass incarceration in New York State? And we arranged the report by looking at uh, the criminal justice system from beginning to end and asking how can we, we reduce the sort of footprint and the impact of the criminal justice system on people at each stage, looking to arrest fewer people, arraign fewer people, convict fewer people, sentence fewer people to prison, reduce prison sentences, reform prisons, reform parole, and then at the end, reform sealing, which allows people to seal their criminal convictions. So this report looks at each stage of the criminal justice process and makes specific recommendations aimed at achieving those general goals. So speaking of goals, um, can, either, can both of you talk about a little bit what principles of criminal justice or criminal legal reform um, you see this report as uh, expressing, like what, what are those basic principles in terms of how the system should be administered or how it's not being administered and how it should be? Yeah, so I think um, there's two general concepts and I'll talk about the first and then we'll leave the second for Julian, I think. But one is that uh, a lot of times there's this notion that public safety and criminal justice reform are in, in conflict, that you cannot have one without sacrificing the other. And 
that one of the key ideas of this report is that that's a false dichotomy, that there is, that smart criminal justice reforms actually makes uh, communities safer and that our criminal justice system as it currently exists basically perpetuates criminal behavior by making it um, really difficult for people to, uh, who are sort of caught in the system to get back out of it again and by punishing sort of crimes of poverty and things like that disproportionately and sort of trap people in a cycle. So one of the key things here is that you can have smart criminal justice reforms that makes communities safer. And that the other key piece of that is to address the reasons why people commit crimes, that too often in the criminal justice system, we focus solely on punishment and often excessive punishment while missing an opportunity to consider why someone is in the criminal justice system at this particular moment and what can be done to ensure that they don't return to the system in the future rather than simply punish them. Julian, you wanted to address that as well? Sure. Um, so I think as Tess mentioned, you know, the second core priority of the report is to shrink the system. And so I think most of us who are listening to this podcast, and especially those of us who are lawyers or in criminal justice, realize that you know, we have a mass incarceration problem nationwide, but particularly in the state of New York. And um, we've spent billions of dollars within our state or even the city of New York on incarcerating people um, and prosecuting them. And we also have tens of thousands of people who are incarcerated in prisons. We have, um, just before bail reform, we had over 20,000 people on any given day incarcerated in our jails. And that did dip to something around um, 14,000 um, early last year. And we're ticking back up, sadly, in terms of our jail population. So the idea is, like Tess says, if we uh, address the root causes of crime instead of merely punishing, we take those investments that we're putting into prosecuting, arresting, and incarcerating people, um, and put those investments into the kinds of services, supports, treatments, and the like that are mentioned in the report, um, put those investments towards the root causes of crime, then the system itself can shrink and we will not have a mass incarceration problem, but instead we'll have a system that invests in flourishing communities uh, instead of incarcerating entire communities. So to me, it sounds like what you know we're saying is, is that we don't think that there's a tension, which we've been hearing a lot about and uh, lately, that there, is, there isn't a tension between public safety and criminal justice reform. And you've both spoken to that. I'm wondering if we could make it um, a little bit concrete. Like I'm thinking about maybe the 19 or the 20 year old who's facing a serious felony, perhaps, uh, perhaps a robbery in the second degree, perhaps a, a robbery of, of, of some personal property from another person um, and is now being charged with robbery in the second degree. Some, in, a, in, a, in a traditional way that, especially if that person has maybe a misdemeanor conviction or some other problems before, like, you know, in their record, they are going to be facing a prison sentence. And unless um, the prosecutor reduces the, the charge, it's a mandatory upstate sentence. So could either of you speak to perhaps how you would see that person or that case being treated differently under our report and how that might affect public safety. 
Sure, I'm, I'm happy to. And I think there are really good models throughout the country and even in our own city and state that we can point to. Um, I think if we back up just a little bit, uh, uh, using your hypothetical, Sarah, and we look at, okay, if we go the traditional route, like you said, and prosecute and incarcerate this kid, send him upstate potentially, um, and then at some point, because we don't give life sentences to people who, um, you know, commit a robbery, I think that's what you said as example, the person is released um, back into the community, but is probably worse off than before. It doesn't, now they've been removed from their home, they might have lost their children, their employment, their education opportunities, they might not be able to get financial aid um, or get a new and job. And they have because a felony record. record. And they have a felony record, so they can't get a job, go back into public housing, um, and therefore are kind of just plopped back into, let's say, New York City, um, worse off than before. But if we look to other examples around the country where there are investments both on the front end before someone is to potentially commit a robbery, but also on the back end. So instead of merely punishing incarcerating, there are programs um, like the Advanced Peace Program in Richmond or the Save Our Streets Program, which is a cure violence program here in Crown Heights where, there's a, where they really invest in violence interruption before it happens, but also in response. Um, and so what they would do is they identify folks who um, either have committed crimes or are at risk for various reasons. And they employ credible messengers who are usually formerly incarcerated people or former gang members who engage in outreach mentorship um, after someone might have committed a crime, that person is referred to them so that there's case management and life skills training. They have elder circles, daily check-ins, physical and mental health professionals that conduct cognitive behavioral therapy and on-site hospital interventions. Um, if it's a gunshot victim or someone who's uh, committed a crime, like let's say that robbery was a crime that involved you know, a shooting of the person that was robbed, um, and there's a potential um, risk of retaliation, whether it's a robbery or shooting, there are folks that go in and, and, and um, intervene before there's retaliation and just that cycle with that same kid that might come back and then be retaliated against after being released. Um, and then just social service navigation um, and other intersecting supports like subsidized employment training and placement, transformational travel. I'm sorry about my background noise. It's summer in Brooklyn. <laughs> um, and, and what we've seen is that there was 85% reduction in firearm assaults in Richmond, California, after they integrated the Advanced Peace Program. There was 65% reduction in related homicides after that program went into certain communities. Here in New York, um, a study showed that in a Crown Heights neighborhood that had Save Our Streets, which implements the violence interruption and credible messenger program, that there was a 20% um, reduction in gun violence as compared to adjacent communities. Um, and a study in Chicago found that 31, there was a 31% drop in homicides and a 19% uh, drop in shootings in two neighborhoods where there were violence interrupters. So it there's interruption on the front end to prevent that kid from coming into the program in your hypothetical, Sarah, but also on the back end, when he comes back, there are supports and intervention and mentorship that prevents one, his um, returning to the same kind of behavior, but also to kind of mitigate 
the collateral consequences of having that conviction um, or, or being diverted into these programs so he's not sent to prison or not given a felony conviction. And I think that's what the report, there's a, it tested such a great job with this report and that she gives very concrete examples of ways to implement those kinds of interventions on the front end and the back end that are similar to what we see in the Advanced Peace Program and the Save Our Streets Program, where the kid is diverted if he is arrested, um, or there's interventions that prevent the initial arrest to begin with. And just to, just to build on that a little bit, um, you know, that's exactly right. Like we want to shift the focus on preventing the crime in the first place to these other resources that Julian talked about, and then preventing the next crime by that individual, you know, who may not commit a crime no matter what, but if you give him the resources to help him make that decision or her make that decision. And so, you know, what we're building on is programming that's been done throughout New York City and in some of the other counties um, that divert people out of traditional pathways. There's sort of alternative to incarceration programs or gun diversion programs where someone who would receive a mandatory prison sentence instead can go receive the sort of services that Julian's talking about. And if they're successful, then they don't have a prison sentence and sometimes don't have a conviction. So also don't have that conviction weighing them down. And one of the what our report is calling for is a shift of these programs out of the hands of prosecutors right now if there's a most of the crimes of violence, it's a mandatory prison sentence. And only a prosecutor can decide whether or not to divert an individual out of the system. And it means that each county has its own way of doing this, its own um, programs it's in touch with, its own decision making. And it's not, um, you know, it's really dependent on who a given prosecutor is or a given DA in a given county as to whether these programs that are proven to work are really allowed to flourish. Um, and just to give sort of another example of the court-based programming, you know, there's a gun diversion court in Monroe County um, where kids who were found with a gun are sent to their court, are given these specific programs. If they succeed, they don't go to jail. Sometimes they don't get a felony. And that program in Monroe County had an 82% success rate over two years while they found in comparison, the conventional wisdom of sending someone to jail had a 77% failure rate, meaning they were rearrested. So it's, it's very clear that we're actually making our communities safer if we do these programs. And by not engaging in these programs, we're making our communities less safe. So we're calling for legislation that takes us out of the hands of prosecutors and puts it in the hands of judges to make the determination as to who should get to um, engage in this kind of programming that's proven to work. What about the um, the first time felony um, um, diversion court? I mean, that's a proposal in the report as well that would speak to this, right? Yes, exactly. I mean, this is my 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 pet um, sort of thing that's nearest and dearest to my heart for a, a lot of reasons. I was a narcotics prosecutor before I um, went to criminal defense, and I just so routinely saw young people take felony convictions and they weren't necessarily going to jail in the drug context for their first felony conviction, but the realization as they took that plea of how narrow their future life choices had been made just by making that plea. And that because unfortunately of how probation is structured and funded, very few of them through probation get the kind of support and services that they might need to overcome this additional hurdle of having a felony in order to find a good job um, and to do those sorts of things. Um, so the first time felony diversion court would 
allow judges to consider diversion for anyone who's facing their first felony conviction. So if someone has never before received a felony, a judge can decide that to divert them out, give them programming, and if they succeed, then they would not have the felony conviction at the end of it. And it would be individualized program based on the needs of the specific person and what brought them into that courthouse, whether it's housing, education, trauma therapy, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, education, employment resources, all of those sorts of things uh, catered to that individual. And then if they succeed, um, their case is dismissed and they don't have that felony conviction weighing them down, um, which I'm trying to remember off the top of my head with the Brennan's, the Brennan Center did this great report that showed just the felony conviction itself reduces future earnings of um, a person regardless of whether they're incarcerated. And I want to say it's 22%, although that number might be off a little bit, but there was a, a substantial change in someone's future income just from having a felony conviction for the rest of their lives. Um, and obviously that has an impact on people, their communities and their families. So the felony diversion court, the aim is to sort of reduce the harm from the felony conviction and also address the reason someone uh, came to the courthouse and hope that in the future, they'll um, have the tools to make different choices going forward. Um, and that is, uh, is that court um, going on anywhere as far as you know in, in the state now or? So there's sort of, there's versions of it. Um, there, the, some of the alternative to incarceration courts certainly take in um, people who are facing their first felony conviction. Um, Although those are really focused on people with mandatory prison sentences, which not every first time um, person with first felony has. Uh, the other things is just sort of informal mechanisms that many DAs um, call repleters, where someone pleads guilty to a felony and then they do some sort of program in New York City. It's often a program like Fortune Society that provides similar services to what we're talking about here. And then if the person succeeds, then at the end, their plea is withdrawn and they get to have a misdemeanor instead of a felony conviction. Um, but that is, it's a really ad hoc system that lacks the sort of um, overview and the uh, control that comes from having sort of a single courtroom that focuses on the specific issue and sort of keeps an eye on um, everything and everyone and has clear rules as to what needs to be done in order to succeed and clear support systems. And also, again, has judicial discretion as the primary discretion rather than prosecutorial discretion. One thing I wanted to ask you uh, both is uh, you mentioned trauma. Um, and uh, it seems to me, having been involved in the court system a long time, that um, many, many of uh, the kind of first or, you know, second or third offenders that we're talking about and of that young age group often have severe trauma in their past. And it's in a, in a way that I think a lot of lay people don't even realize, you know, they don't understand, you know, they don't see, you know, what you see if you're involved in the court system, the kinds of terrible trauma that people have, whether it's, um, you know, abandonment as a child or, you um, viewing, you know, a murder in front of your eyes, perhaps of a close relative, um, poverty, um, you know, hunger, all sorts of things, as I, I think you both could speak to uh, more articulate than Lee than me. But um, in, it does seem to me that one of the things that the report mentions is that there is a uh, one of the problems with uh, reflex, reflexive incarceration is that we're just increasing the trauma. So increasing 
the likelihood, when we talk about public safety, increasing the likelihood that someone is going to be further traumatized and, and therefore more likely, you know, if that, as, as you say, Tess, if you talk about the root causes, if, if, if that was a root cause, then they're going to be more likely to recommit when they get out. Do you um, agree with that? Or do you have anything from the report that you would want to add either of you to that? Yeah, I, I completely agree. And there's some stats that we have in the report um, about sort of trauma uh, in people who are incarcerated, like various different um, academics have sort of gone to prisons and studied the population to determine sort of the rates of trauma. And it's not surprisingly for those of us who are sort of in the system working in it day in and out, it's significantly higher. Um, one study found that for incarcerated men, rates of um, PTSD symptoms are 30 to 60% higher than found in the general male population. Another found that for incarcerated adult males, trauma exposure rates range from 62 to 87%. Um, and then for women, it's even more stark. For incarcerated women, um, one study by the Bureau of Justice Statistics found that 53% of incarcerated women met the criteria for lifetime PTSD. Um, and that's, those are just some of the stats. There's tons of studies on this that just shows that there's a, a ton of trauma in the backgrounds of people who ultimately end up incarcerated. And absolutely, all, uh, all prison does as it's currently structured is exacerbate that trauma. There's very little mental health treatment that you receive in prison. Um, and, and we're calling for that to be sort of an automatic thing that be given to people when they're in prison, in addition to just reducing incarceration rates radically in general. Um, and in, in general, exactly, the, the prison fur furthers the trauma and so much, so many times I think we see a case where someone's had multiple crimes in their background and ultimately some sort of violent crime might culminate in it. And we ask ourselves, like, why weren't these better interventions employed far beforehand to help this person address their trauma rather than us just re-traumatizing them and re-traumatizing them. And in, in many ways, the state just causes that ultimate violent crime themselves through this re-traumatization. Julian, do you have any, did you want to talk about that at all? Or should I mean, I mean, Tessa eloquently. <laughs> okay. um, there's much I can add other than to say, like, you know, I would see it in all of my cases. And you know, as you mentioned, Sarah, as a public defender, both in DC and the Superior Court, but here um, in federal court in New York City. And I, it's a rare client I encountered that didn't have some sort of severe trauma in their past or even their present. Um, and prisons and jails are inherently traumatic, um, notwithstanding the lack of um, psychiatric and mental health care that Tess talked about, but just the way it's structured the conditions, even the minimum standards, the best practices in terms of prison and jail are inherently um, violent and isolating uh, and re-traumatizing. And so as, men, as Tess said, um, I, I don't know any clients that have been made better for having been in prison. They might've done better because they needed to to survive prison and become better to survive prison. But I don't know that any of them would say prison or jail made me better. Um, go ahead, and there's so many ripple effects as well, which I, th which I think you alluded to before, right? So for every person that goes to prison, then there's somebody back home who's affected by that, you know, worst case children 
obviously children with an incarcerated parent do very poorly. Um, but you know, every, every person who's a member of that person's family or circle or community is, 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 you know, or suffers from that. Um, especially given how far away our prisons are placed from, from, um, most of, you know, New York city. So, um, you know, I think that's worth mentioning as well. Um, so what I think we, we've, we've talked, well, here's another question. So we have a lot of proposals in here. Um, uh, and you talked about the sort of eight categories or major things that we're recommending. Um, what motivated the effort to bring all of these ideas for reform into one place? And where do all of these different ideas come from? So um, it comes from, the idea comes from a couple different places. One was that I kept feeling like um, people would, po politicians in particular, would run for office on the platform of ending mass incarceration. And no one really seemed to know what that meant. No one seemed to have a specific idea other than sort of a general notion of imprisoning people less, um, but no specific ideas of how do we achieve this. And a lot of times I do think that understandably the focus centers just on sentences themselves on just the sort of reduction of the sentence. But for me, I saw, especially in the narcotics realm, you see people who essentially end up serving life sentences two to three years at a time, you know, and they just cycle continuously in and out of jail and this really counterproductive, harmful way that doesn't, prevent, you know, it doesn't address the reasons why they're there, costs enormous amount of money. And so just, you know, their sentences were greatly reduced by drug law reform. You know, these are people who before would have been doing significantly more time and now are doing two or three years. And I think as a society, if we come around to the notion largely that these, you know, draconian sentences for drug, um, for drug crimes aren't appropriate, but we, all we did was shorten the sentences. We didn't think about, are there totally alternative pathways besides short sentences that can address this? So I started thinking about, okay, what, th those sort of two ideas came together in my head about sort of addressing root causes. And then also this notion that we need um, an idea of what we mean when we say we wanna end mass incarceration and how to achieve it. And that really, um, what we needed was something that just took the criminal justice system and looked at it from beginning to end through a new lens. Uh, and so that, for me, that lens became sort of a notion of, for lack of a better word, um, rehabilitation, a notion of um, looking at a person coming through the criminal justice system as an individual asking why they're there and doing what we can to address those reasons why, and looking at that from each stage of the process from beginning to end. You know, what we've really done is taken together so much been work that's been done by decades, in some cases, by various advocates, and they each sort of taken a different piece of the pie, and we tried to put them together under one umbrella and giving them a sort of unifying framework. Um, and a lot of what we're drawing on, too, is all sorts of data and progress that's come out of, I will say, sort of programs done through prosecutorial consent. There's so much of this report that draws on things the Center for Court Innovation has been able to do with very specific district attorneys, particularly the Kings County District Attorney's Office, but as well as um, Manhattan and some of the others. And, and we sort of drew on what they've proven works and said, okay, let's expand this. Let's take this program we know works and let's move it further out. So those were sort of the different things that came together in my head and led to, to this specific proposal or many proposals. 
Um, so I just wanted to go backwards a little bit. We were talking about specific proposals in the report. Um, it seems like, and you mentioned that one of the major areas that we look at is um, reduction of sentences. Like how can we best do that? And it seems like there are a couple of proposals in here that are pretty, um, um, you know, far reaching, I guess is the word I would use in terms of abolishing um, mandatory minimums, abolishing uh, the persistent category. Um, I don't know if, if one of you would be able to uh, talk about those proposals and how you think they would effectuate the goals that we have. Um, so I think the single biggest um, change would be if we, if, we, if we call them for the removal of predicate and violent predicate statuses in New York. And so for those who aren't familiar, uh, essentially what New York says is if you've committed a felony in the last 10 years, and it tolls with prison sentences. So often it's far longer than 10 years. I've seen it toll back 25, 30 years ago, you had your prior felony, and then you are convicted of another felony. Um, mandatory minimums basically kick in that wouldn't be there except for that prior felony. And in the case of a violent predicate felony, it's a much higher. So if, if the prior crime is violent, it's much higher. So to give a concrete example, if you are convicted of selling a single bag, $10 bag of crack cocaine in New York, and you have no predicate felony, uh, you're eligible for probation. If you have previously been convicted of a felony, you have a two-year mandatory minimum. If you've previously been convicted of a violent felony, even though this current crime is not violent, you have a six-year mandatory minimum. Um, so you have this enormous increasing of sentence based purely on a prior conduct that is often 20, 25, even 30 years ago. Um, so what we're calling for is a removal of these categories that sort of have these very strict delineations of what sentences you have to impose. And you, they have to be incarceratory in almost all cases. Um, and say, let's just give judges back the discretion. We're not saying that prior criminal conduct shouldn't come into play when deciding what someone's sentences are. We're saying a judge should have discretion to say, okay, in this particular case, even though this is the second felony, jail isn't appropriate or six years is not appropriate. Um, and, and it's worth remembering with how our um, sentencing laws are structured, Prosecutor, prosecutors don't actually have ultimate discretion in these cases. They often have to dismiss indictments when there's a prior felony if they want to give someone a non-incarceratory sentence. So in that case- Which of, doesn't happen very often. That's correct. Like, you know, you go through a lot of procedural hurdles and there's an expectation that it should be sort of the rare case where you dismiss an indictment. It shouldn't be a, a routine thing. So that, that person who uh, sold a single bag of crack and is a violent predicate felon maybe for a robbery in the 90s, um, you know, and has battled substance abuse for the last 20 years and been in and out of jail, and they sell that single bag of crack, six years is the mandatory minimum after trial, but the lowest sentence post-indictment without dismissal is two and a half years that the prosecutor can even offer. The prosecutor can't offer anything less than two and a half years without uh, dismissing the indictment. So these are really um, drive a lot of the incarceration, the predicate and violent predicate statuses. So that would be, I think the single biggest change would be to change, to remove those categories from our sentencing structure. I, I think that, um, you know, what you said, you know, makes a lot of sense in terms of trying to give more discretion back to judges and to individualize sentence so that a person can be looked at as an individual. And I think a lot of judges actually feel frustrated 
when they can't do that. And you give a really good example in the report of somebody who may even be out on bail, possibly would have been out on bail before, but now, especially under the new bail laws, is out, is successful, is, is staying out of trouble, is completing programming, perhaps gets a job, perhaps gets housing, and yet faces a mandatory minimum sentence. And to make it concrete, that person could be somebody who committed a shoplift. But because they had previously committed a shoplift, it's charged as a felony, and they now face a minimum sentence. I sometimes get the, the numbers wrong, but it's somewhere in the range of two to four or something like that. And, they, and the judge has no choice but to, to sentence this person um, to, to prison time, even though, as you note in the report, they, that's completely counterproductive. And um, the person is doing just what we want and has become um, you know, uh, successful and yet, you know, their hands are completely tied. Um, another, uh, thing that we don't, we don't talk about, we haven't talked about is life sentences and how, um, somebody who commits a package burglary perhaps goes to a building and, uh, takes a package from the lobby that that is treated as a violent crime in New York. That is a burglary in the second degree. And so one of the things we call for in report is reclassifying that, to be a nonviolent crime. But in the meantime, we have people in New York state prisons who are serving life sentences because their, their third crime was taking a package from a lobby. So that's another uh, reform that, that I believe the report is calling for. Um, Julian, did you have anything to add on, on life sentences or anything on the, the sentencing structure in general or? Not necessarily. I just, just going back to the data too, and, and thinking about what is the purpose of these mandatory minimums and predicate um, enhancement um, schemes that we have here, but also elsewhere around the country is, you know, what is, what is the benefit? It's not public safety, um, as I think we've hinted on before in terms of the outcomes once people are released, but it also isn't really a deterrent, which I think folks, some folks just want their pound of flesh, but a lot of folks think it's a deterrent. And in fact, studies show that it isn't actually the length of a sentence that is a deterrent, but it's oftentimes the fact of being caught, whether it's by police or whomever, it's the fact of being caught. And that is actually uh, an important intervention point. Uh, and the question is, what's the intervention and what's your return on investment on that intervention? And against you know, the incarcerating someone, um, is, is not a good return on your investment in terms of the, the not just the financial cost, but the societal cost that you were talking about earlier to Sarah. Um, and so, you know, we spend $438,000 a year to incarcerate one person in Rikers Island, which is a jail sentence, not a prison sentence. But, um, you know, you were talking about if the person's released uh, because of the new bail law and has all of these opportunities to, um, to better their life and not be taken away from their family and employment and kind of get back on the right track. And the fact that they were um, caught, but given an opportunity to go back out gives them the opportunity for the, the interventions that we were talking about and then giving them these mandatories. Once we do give them the intervention, um, but saying, sorry, you still have to go in for two to four years or for life. You know, what, is, what are we getting out of that as a society? not to mention just the moral questions about the individual's life. And studies are showing that we're not getting anything and actually longer sentences set people up for failure and recidivism um, because of the disruption to their lives and their communities. 
So um, on that note, what would you um, like government entities, who, someone who reads this report, what would you like them to do? Like what, what kinds of reforms or actions should um, government take to implement these proposals? What would, they, what would they need to do, do you think? I mean, in terms of which entities are responsible for this, the different proposals in the report? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, like we put right in the title that, you know, we, these are recommendations for the New York State Legislature. But, you know, do you think that that, 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 is that is that what we're asking? Like, what specifically are we asking? Are we asking for changes in the law? Are we asking for um, only this, you know, can only the state do these? Is there other, other government entities that we could, that could, or perhaps there's yeah. court system um, things that could be done right away without laws being changed or without inactions? Yeah, so I think there are a lot of um, proposals that are with squarely within the purview of the New York State Legislature to pass statutory changes in terms of decriminalization, um, judicially controlled alternatives that uh, Tess was mentioning earlier, um, changing mandatory minimums and predicate enhancements, repeal of CPL 22030, which restricts felony plea bargaining, which was the, I believe the, di the dynamic Tess is talking about procedurally that's difficult. Um, changing sentencing ranges and presumptions of non-incarceration as are suggested in the report, creating uniform statewide felony and pre-plea diversion and mental health courts that don't require prosecutorial consent. Um, and creating and paying for restorative justice programming, in addition to many other the, the proposals in the report, those are things that we really need the state legislature, legislature to create mechanisms and funding schemes for, that we just can't do, the court can't do, the hands of the judge as Tessa are tied, um, or even the hands of the prosecutor. But there are things that um, local executives, city councils, and district attorneys can do to implement some of these reforms without having to wait to go through the legislative, uh, the statewide legislative process. Um, prosecutors can use their discretion in terms of making charging decisions, uh, diversion decisions. Um, some prosecutors uh, here, but also across the state or um, country, have lists of charges that they're just not going to prosecute. Um, in terms of making certain sentencing recommendations within the, the existing statutory scheme. Um, and also release and revocation, um, parole release recommendations as well. Those are things that are squarely within the, the purview of the prosecutor and their discretion. And so there are opportunities for them to create internal policies with respect to these categories and other categories, um, uh, not just categories, but stages of a case. Right? Those are discretionary choices that can be made. Um, and then also TESS has a section in the report on police reform. And some of it is legislative, but a lot of it is discretionary, right? Where do we prioritize police personnel um, within each city or county? Uh, from, you know, do we need police to be, we, we hear it in the, the mayoral campaigns right now, right? Do we need police to be in schools? Do we need police to be uh, in the subway system? Do we need police to just be the, the number of police we have patrolling? Or do we need to take um, a large chunk of that personnel and focus them on addressing and solving serious crime? Our murder um, case closure rate in our city, in New York City, is abysmally low, particularly in the communities that are most affected by 
um, murders and crime, um, gun crime uh, and gun violence. And when cases are resolved, incarceration and stigmatization are the only responses. Neither prevents future crime and instead they create generational burdens on individuals, on families and on communities. So we should take our police personnel and redirect them towards solving serious crimes and serious harm as a response to an immediate need and then invest our resources in evidence-driven prevention and reintegration strategies such as credible messenger, violence interruption, public health interventions, and holistic community-based supports. Other things like, you know, folks who are in crisis with mental health calling 911 or, you know, uh, disciplinary or behavioral issues in schools, we are actually having folks who are um, trained and aren't here as a punishment mechanism to respond to those crises, then we're better using our policing resources. And those are discretionary choices within the police department or city, city and county governments. Um, and we see that happening a little bit in New York now. Like there's a pilot project in East Harlem now where there are non-law enforcement responders to some mental health crises calls that are being piloted in East New York and hopefully will be expanded. And so that's one example of just using your discretion without statewide le legislation. Um, and another way that local executives um, and, and uh, elected leaders uh, can use their discretion and their power without having to wait on the state um, is investing in public health and community-based interventions and responses. So like I was mentioning earlier, um, instead of sending police um, or using uh, you know, flooding our communities, flooding um, certain black and brown communities, particularly with uh, policing um, and the violence that often comes with it, is having credible, credible messengers and violence interrupters and um, folks who are trained in uh, responding to trauma, all the trauma that you guys spoke about. If we're flooding our communities with those folks instead, we will see a better return um, and better more flourishing communities um, as the statistics I mentioned earlier point to. So those are ways um, that local executives councils and um, prosecutors can, can use their discretion. And then there's ways that there can be a combination of action by local uh, elected officials, as well as the state legislature. So for instance, we can augment and pay for the kinds of probation and other post-release supervision programming that is suggested uh, in the report by passing and by passing parole reform. So for example, um, we could expand opportunities for parole, probation, compassionate release and non-incarceratory sentences in the ways that are um, discreetly listed in the report um, by um, both passing the reforms like what we just passed was um, Less is more just passed. And so what a report from the Center for Justice at Columbia University found is by passing less is more, which um, prevents folks from being automatically incarcerated um, or detained on technical parole violations and some other provisions, the state could save $683 million at spending on incarcerating people on technical parole violations. Um, and so if we took that money and invested that money um, in programs like New York City's ARCHES program, which is um, highlighted in the report, we can augment um, uh, productive and uh, post-release supervision that doesn't 
funnel people back into the carceral state. Um, additionally, though it didn't, sadly didn't pass um, that same report by uh, the justice the Center for Justice of Columbia used some data from the Vera Institute of Justice that said that if the state does pass elder parole and fair and timely parole, hopefully in the next legislative session, the state could save $522 million. So combining those two parole reforms, um, or excuse me, those three parole reforms, that's over a billion dollars that we invest in programs like ARCHES um, that are not incarcerative that release more people on parole, compassionate release, second chances, um, and then helps them with re-entry and supports to give them successful, vibrant lives um, that don't get funneled back into the criminal legal system. Great. Tess, did you want to add to that some of the legislative proposals or? I mean, I, I would just echo everything like that Julian just said. I, I think there's very specific, obvious legislative reforms that we've listed. Like if a if New York State Assemblyman or a legislator like wants to go through and make a huge change to the criminal justice system, like we've given them a step-by-step -step guide for how to do that. Um, if a city council member or an executive branch wants to undertake what Julian is talking about, that's also called for in the report. Um, you know, that that's all of there and DA's offices can do these themselves. And there's really, this is a moment where we need to take those steps. You know, we are seeing a, a slight uptick, not slight, there is an uptick in homicides and gun violence in the city right now. And the rhetoric around it, I think is really dangerous. It could set us back enormously, both in criminal justice reform, but also in safety itself. I mean, people are acting as though obviously flooding police might make it better or safer and maybe there's downsides but we're going to make it safer by flooding the police but studies have shown that sort of broken windows policing if anything may have perpetuated criminal um, activity and made communities less safe so there was a recent study um, done that showed um, was able to sort of look specifically at non-prosecution it's a really good study and so if you prosecute if you decline to prosecute non-violent misdemeanors um, so if, if you decline to prosecute nonviolent misdemeanors, um, defendants were charged, uh, there was a reduction in future charges by that defendant for a violent offense by 64%. So you're dropping the risk of violence in the next two years by 64% by declining to prosecute a nonviolent. If you prosecute it, it goes up 64%. So, and, you know, if this is what minor, you, you could do it at the prosecution stage, but you can also do it at the policing stage. Just don't arrest them for that minor behavior that can cause a future violent act by trapping them in this cycle. And so when we act as though we are keeping communities safe by pumping them with police and doing broken window style, um, style policing, we're actually making our communities less safe. And we're diverting money that could be going into violence intervention programs and gun diversion courts and things like that that actually work into things that we now don't know don't work. Um, you know, and, and another way to look about this in NYPD is we sort of have our own micro experiment, right? Like stop and frisk numbers reduced drastically. You know, we went from approximately 600, 685,000 stops at stop and frisks in 2011 down to 22,000 in 2015, but we didn't see a big uptick in homicides between 2011 and 2015. By having police no longer just stop and search random people in communities in enormous numbers did not cause an increase in crime. And yet 
as we later unrelatedly see an increase in crime, there's a call to do these things again that we know cause harm. Um, so it's really- And we should probably point out that I believe, and Julian may know better than me, the statistic on stop and frisk was the, the actual recovery of anything related to a violent crime was less than 1% of, this, of people stopped, less than 1%. It was so, it, it wasn't, not only, not only is there no difference in crime rates when we stop doing it, there was actually no, it wasn't successful at what it claimed to do in any event. So right. that and whole it, rhetoric around that is, 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 is false rhetoric. Right. And it, it, it um, made tensions so high between police and the communities that they're policing. It makes it more difficult to solve um, violent crimes when everyone feels like everyone in their community is a suspect. So I think um, it's really important, not only that the legislature take these actions, actions, council members, um, DAs, but also just the public and journalists in terms of how they talk about these crimes and whether they just sort of accept this false dichotomy between criminal justice reform and um, public safety. Like we're, we're calling on people to, to sort of think about the data and think about what you can do to make your community safe just by being thoughtful about what actually works in keeping communities safe. One legislative uh, reform I wanted to just mention or just highlight, because in terms of like a really easy thing that I think the legislature could and should do is the raise the youthful offender age, because right now it's 18. And, you know, we've all heard this over and over again, but it's, you know, obviously been proven and shown that, you know, that the brain is the development age is now 25 or 26. It's not 18. And you know, to one of the, you know, and I mentioned it before in, in the context of that first felony conviction problem of a 20 year old, but it's, you know, some of that could be helped by, a, you know, youthful offender treatment so that somebody is not getting a felony record um, at the age of 20 or 21 when they are, you know, very, very young people. And it's just, you know, kind of a shame that we have cut that off at such a young, young age. And yeah, I know legislation is pending on that. Yeah, and I completely agree. And I should be clear, you know, I mean, this is really broken down. So people, legislators can take pieces of this at a time. Like this, absolutely any single passage of one of the suggestions in this report that other advocates have been calling for, for would make a huge difference in thousands and sometimes tens of thousands of people's lives. So like these are each individually important in and of themselves. And, and you know, any attempt to pass any piece of it should be lauded and supported. Um, and there's some, you know, sort of very small tweaks, like, for example, reclassifying certain robberies and burglaries, like the one Sarah mentioned before, the person who takes the package out of the hallway of an apartment building. Right now, it's a violent crime because that's considered going in someone's home. That's a pretty easy, small tweak that would make a huge difference to the people who are charged with these crimes. So there's some of the sort of smaller things like that. Or and larceny know, levels, you know, the larceny yeah. levels being set from like, you know, 30, 40 years ago, and those have not been changed. And there are felonies for stealing relatively small amounts. Yeah, I, and I think the criminal mischief actually has been at the same level since 1912, if I'm remembering. It's 1912 or 1916, something ridiculous like that. So you have to do the same monetary amount of damage from 1912 to now to get a felony. And I think $250 is that number and $250 in the early 1900s is not the same as it is now a hundred years later. Um, yet that's still the number that's a felony. Um, so 
those are, I, I believe there's yeah. actually pending legislation about both the larceny, yeah. about the larceny at least. Yeah. Julian, I feel like you were going to add something a little while ago about no, no, it's, something it's, Tess it's, was talking about. Yes, but it, it's, it's a okay. moment has passed. I'm, 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 sorry. <laughs> I'm a okay. terrible moderator. Um, <laughs> Well, I'm going to go to you anyway, because now I'm going to, I know you already referred to it, but I was just wondering if there was anything you wanted to add about the report and mental health and what you see as how the report addresses issues of mental health. Yeah, I think the report, I know we talked about trauma specifically, um, but the report also does, um, it is very intentional about weaving in and acknowledging the suffering and criminalization of New Yorkers who are dealing with mental illness. And in the report, we explicitly recommend that first our state and local officials fund mental health assessment and treatment outside of the criminal legal system. And secondly, that prosecutors and courts are committed to diverting folks out of the criminal legal system and into necessary community-based holistic supports. Um, And I know one um, important component of the report that, you know, we'll probably talk about more is just that the report sees a lot of this as both um, as as being focused on mental health, but also weaving in um, the racial justice component of a lot of these reforms and, and citing the racial equity. And I think one area of the criminal legal system where we see the racial inequity most distinctly, most starkly is Um, in how mental health has been criminalized. So what we know is that um, BIPOC people, especially Black folks, um, have less access to mental health services than white people, um, are less likely to receive needed care, and are more likely to receive poor quality care when they are treated in the community. Um, And this is within the broader context of our nation having completely dismantled our previous system of psychiatric institutionalization, which was also problematic, um, but not having invested in the community-based treatments, supports, and services um, that are just not working for anyone, but particularly BIPOC folks. Um, And so as usual, Black, Brown, Indigenous, and poor folks were left in the margins. Um, And this was all happening um, as the racist war on drugs and tough on crime legislation was sweeping our nation, but specifically our state, um, because we did see the Rockefeller drug laws here um, really led the nation um, in the 70s and and peaked with our infamous uh, 1995 crime bill federally. So instead of pouring money into mental health care and other community supports that help communities flourish um, and engender stability, our elected leaders here in our state made the choice to spend billions of dollars on policing and criminalization and incarceration as the primary mechanism to address all of our social ills, but especially mental mental illness. Um, And so what we know how that is manifesting here in New York City specifically is that as of um, late May, 51.6% of New York City's jail population was what is called a Brad H mental health designation, which is a very specific mental health designation. Um, So that's half of the people that we incarcerate um, have it's serious mental health designation. And um, as of March of last year, around the start of the pandemic, it was, it was fewer people. So we're actually incarcerating more people despite bail reform um, and despite this dramatic decarceration that's been happening for the last decade or so, we are still incarcerating and criminalizing folks with mental illness. Um, and so 
these are um, numbers that are more stark and demoralizing when we consider the research showing that black and brown folks are less likely to be identified as having a mental health need while incarcerated, often because mental health screening tools used by jails reproduce racial disparities, resulting in far fewer black and Latinx people screening positive. So the numbers that I gave you about Brad H status are probably um, quite underrepresentative of the number of folks who are in our jails um, who have mental health needs um, and whose um, charges uh, and offenses and the reason why they got wrapped up in the criminal legal system has a root or is rooted in their mental health status and most of them are black and brown. And so this report has been very um, intentional about highlighting mental health and racial disparities, but also the intersection, which I think um, we often, those of us in this work, we often don't focus on either one of those, but particularly the intersection. And so um, you know, there were lots of recommendations that, you know, Tess could really get into the, the weeds of that, but a lot of it was around diversion, mental health courts, um, pre-plea um, assessments, um, but also really focusing on the fact that we need to fund a system that has been underfunded for decades. Um, Tess, did you have, I mean, I know like with mental health court, for example, um, right now, at least in Manhattan, it's prosecution, it, the prosecution is the gatekeeper and very few cases are diverted to mental health court. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we call for the mental health, the creation of mental health court based on judicial discretion rather than um, prosecutorial consent. Um, and I think the Brooklyn Mental Health Court is sort of the model in the state, honestly, of, of how of sort of the best version of what this can be. Um, but I do think this also showcases the limits of what can be done within the criminal justice system, right? I mean, we we're pretty explicit in our report that we focused on the system to a certain extent as it exists, right? We're not uh, attacking the very notion of a criminal justice system in general, nor are we suggesting that all problems that are solved by the criminal justice system should be solved by the criminal justice system. That there's so many things that should, that are currently funneled into the criminal justice system, like so many problems that should be um, ideally addressed long before the criminal justice system is even relevant. And to the extent that they're not, that, you know, crime has occurred before something can be addressed, someone still is taken out of the system when something like mental health is the true cause of these activities. And so, there are limits on what can be done solely by sort of addressing changing the criminal justice reform that you really have to fund, like Julian's suggesting, mental health services long before the criminal justice system is relevant if we really wanna make changes um, to how our society treats those who have uh, mental illnesses and the sort of frequency with which people who are mentally ill end up in prisons. Um. Did you want to talk a little bit, Tess, about um, funding, questions of funding, and you both alluded to it, I know, as we've spoken, but just you want to ex expressly address the issue of funding and uh, these reforms? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think so many of these reforms are calling for the creation or the solidification of structures um, that are going to require funding. Like if, if the state passes these legislation absent funding and just sort of put a bunch of unfunded ma mandates on local counties, 
um, they're not going to succeed, or at least they're not going to succeed the way they could with proper funding. But if instead we divert money from prisons, when we take money that we can save on prisons and on policing um, and on, you know, saving money just by not prosecuting an enormous amount of sort of low-level crimes and funnel some of those savings into these sort of programmings, but a lot of those savings into the community and outside of the criminal justice system. That's what's needed for these to specifically succeed. Um, and that, you know, a lot of the programs now that are based on prosecutorial consent, like their budgets are at risk every year. You know, it's a, they don't know what their budget's gonna be. It, it really affects how they can provide programming. Um, and so there's a lack of stability um, which would really, um, it, there would be a huge benefit to the programs themselves if they had a sense of the sort of stable funding. Um, so, you know, for all those reading reasons, funding is really key to this entire question. And I think it's important to note that we do have the money, like Tess said, is diverting some money that we no longer need. So for instance, you know, the NYPD budget is about $11 billion if you include all of the costs, not just their operating budget. It's $11 billion. That's $1 billion more than what Los Angeles spends. And they have the largest jail system in the country. Um, we also spend $2.5 billion on our Department of Correction uh, budget. And again, like I said, it costs $438,000 to incarcerate someone in um, the New York City um, jail system. And maybe that made sense when we had 20,000 people who were incarcerated, but right now we have less than 6,000. And our um, correction officer to incarcerated person, person ratio is such that we have more corrections officers than we have incarcerated people. Um, and even 10 years ago, our ratio was far, um, it, it was far out of whack as compared to the national average. Um, and so there just needs to be some right sizing there. Um, for both NYPD and the DOC, and, I, and that can be replicated across the state. Upstate, they could save, um, in the 57 counties outside of New York City, they could save $638 million if they um, address their jail staffing. Um, and so that's a ton of money that I've just mentioned that can be put into some of these funding needs um, that are now being highlighted based on the recommendations in the report. Um, and there, And we understand that some of that means personnel changes and, um, and there needs to be a way of maybe um, diverting and spending some of that money on um, kind of workforce development um, or other absorption of civil service um, positions so that um, we can save that money and redirect that money into to those communities while also not harming the folks who um, are employed by these systems. Um. What is the hard question I know, but what is uh, our order of priorities in the report? What would you say are the most pressing items on the list if you could say, or what would you, where would you wanna go first? Or maybe it's just a broad category rather than a thing, but what, what would you say? And you're gonna ask this and I still don't know the answer. Don't know the answer. Um, I guess I would say we can prioritize broad categories, right? I think. You know, we're working on parole reform around the country, and excuse me, around the state. Um, like I said, less is more passed. There are some other really great pending legislation that can um, help shrink the system um, from the back end. But really, it's um, there needs to be legislative change on the front end um, in terms of sentencing and funneling people into 
um, our prisons and our jails. I think if we can um, close that those funnels or shrink those funnels on both ends, um, then we're really getting at the meat of the rest of the report. And so I will give you those two categories, <laughs> but there are a bunch of proposals underneath those two categories. And that will also help with the funding issues, funding a lot of the um, recommendations that we're looking to as alternatives um, to the existing structure. Um, test. <laughs> I, you know, I struggle with this a lot. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about this um, one too. And, you know, I do think one, you know, <laughs> I end up picking all of them if I think about it too hard. Um, but I, I think a lot about the fact of the conviction itself. Like so many people, you know, we talk about mass incarceration rightfully because, you know, it, it, we take people away from their community and there's these sort of rippling effect consequences that are awful. And then how we treat people in prison is so inhumane. But we also, we just convict so many people of crimes, you know, often for very petty minor things. And there's really, um, there's immense uh, impact that comes from that. You know, people, you know, when they're young may not realize what a possession seven conviction is going to mean, sorry, criminal possession of a controlled substance to the seventh degree, which is, you know, minor misdemeanor, it may seem like nothing, but then like every job application you have going forward, you know, and so, um, or let alone a felony conviction, there's just this ripple effect of consequences. And it's not just the person, it's their family, and like they lose job opportunities, it's their kids, and then it's their community that loses that, you know, sort of economic pull in that comes from being able to do those things. Um, so, I, you know, that's one piece. And then and sort of sealing on the back end, which we haven't talked about as much, but like expanding the ability to seal criminal convictions would also help in this um, by saying you shouldn't be perpetually punished for minor crimes. You should be able to sort of seal criminal records after a certain amount of time or expunge them. Um, and that's sort of where the clean slate New York is this big push that's been going on. And it, for a moment there, it looked like it was going to pass this last legislative session. And unfortunately did not, but there's hope for the, the next session that there'll be this big change to sealing and expungement. Um, but like, I also, I would give anything for there to be a robust gun diversion court throughout the state. I mean, these courts work, they make communities safer, they change people's lives in a positive direction and they reduce violence, you know, they reduce first, you know, future homicides. So the net benefit of something like a gun diversion court being available in every single county in the state cannot be understated at, at you know, this moment or any moment in time. And then, you know, I keep rolling through them all and I come back around to prisons again. But, you know, how we treat people in prisons is just a national shame. And it just became more apparent during the pandemic where we just let people die for minor crimes because we couldn't be bothered to release them. And it's just horrifying. And so, you know, until we reform prisons themselves, you know, I just don't know how uh, how we can legitimate the system itself in any way while we treat people the way we do in prisons. So, you know, all of them, I guess, is the answer to a certain extent. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I would, I totally get that. And I would agree and, and add an even more amorphous thing, which is, you know, I would just like to see us and the state and the court systems, you know, think about these things in such a different way. Just, just, just totally reassess how we think about people. You know, the people that get caught up in the system and treat them as people and treat them in a humane way. 
instead of this reflexive way that we do. And it's partly it's a rhetoric, as you talked about in the media, but, you know, just the rhetoric is bad and it, it, it affects everything, like you said, in terms of not letting people out of jail um, when they faced COVID risks um, because somehow it was considered unfair as if, as if, you know, if you were arrested for robbery or burglary or anything, really, you were sentenced to die, that that was something that was, was reasonable to think. Um, so, you know, I do, I do wish that we could look at these reforms in a, in a, in a um, overarching way and, and try and think about how we can not reflexively send people to prison, not reflexively give people felony records, not, you know, and, and I, I think that um, if I guess if I had to be more concrete, I would say then we should look at, you know, all of the sentencing proposals, you know, in terms of, you know, having more discretion and thereby allowing people to avoid going to jail or to prison or for having a felony record, that that would be a big help. So any of the proposals that deal with sentencing, and I would just add that, you know, so many of the proposals we mentioned, we'd also like to go backwards so that people who have faced injustices in the past would be able to readdress them. So if mandatory uh, persistence, uh, you know, are abolished, or, you know, then, then people who are obviously who are sentenced under that should be permitted to be resentenced. And we have a proposal in the report for the second chance amendment, which would permit people to ask, who are serving very long and excessive sentences to ask uh, permission to be resentenced. And right now there is no mechanism in New York state to do that at all. So that's another um, uh, proposal that I, I would, you know, I would say is, is, a, is one that we should, you know, address to the legislature. Um, uh, Julian, I know you already mentioned this, but, you know, one of the questions that we were going to talk about was how does this uh, report or how do the proposals and report address um, issues of racial justice and equity? And so I'm going to address that to you. Sure. I mean, I think, as I said before, it really calls it out and, and, makes a, um, a clear through line between the, um, or explicitly connects kind of the technical aspect of these, um, the laws that are being looked, um, that we're recommending that there are reforms made to, um, but also the communities that are, are being most impacted. Um, and also that it's not just by happenstance, these communities, black and brown, mostly communities are being impacted. That's not by happenstance, but by um, construction. Um, and they don't maybe use those words as explicitly as I do in the report, but I think that's been, that's made very, very clearly. Um, and so it's not just about efficiency or effectiveness, um, but it's actually about writing um, racial injustice. And I think that's explicitly stated in there. I don't know if Sarah, you're asking me for like specifics. I think it's kind of sprinkled throughout. Um, and in the midst of having all this technical conversation about what statutory changes must be made or who's responsible in our government structure. Um, I think they, the tests and everyone else who worked on this did a really good job of reminding their reader and reminding themselves um, and hopefully reminding the legislator and the other um, decision makers who are reading this, that this is a racial justice. These are racial justice issues. Um, and there are people, like you were saying, Sarah, there are people and there's humanity at the core of these recommendations. And I think that's something that we should um, 
be proud of um, as the Mass Incarceration Task Force, but also as the Bar Association that we need to continue to be explicit about this um, and to call that out. And, I, and I'm, I'm really proud of us for having done that throughout this report. That's a great note to end on unless somebody has something else to say. I, I, I'm, I'm proud of us too. And I, and I, I really hope that um, we are able to accomplish something. And I think it's great that an organization like ours is, is taking this stand and making these recommendations and pushing for reform. And I hope that we'll continue to do so over the course of the next year's um, tests. You know, I wanna give you a last word if you have one. No, I mean, I, I really enjoyed doing this and working with both of you and with the bar on all of this. And and I guess really the one thing we should probably do is just thank all of the people who did the work that got us to this point. Um, you know, I mean, like I said before, these are not novel ideas in this report. Advocates have been doing this for so long. Um, and right now we're at a moment where people are listening and they've been doing it when people weren't listening and they kept pushing and they kept pushing and got us to this point now where change can actually happen. So you know, we, we really have to thank everyone who's sort of come before us in this fight. Thank you for listening to the 44th Street podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, or at our website at nycbar.org. This podcast was produced by Eli Cohen and Alex Cardaris.